Hello and welcome to episode 168 of Turkey Book Talk. Thanks for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Ruben Silverman. He should need no introduction for keen Turkey watchers. His blog, rubensilverman.wordpress.com, is an excellent resource full of incredibly well-researched and detailed pieces on a potpourri of subjects related to contemporary Turkish politics, as well as modern social and cultural history. Most recently, he wrote a monstrous four-part history of the Turkish Central Bank, which sounds boring, but in fact was very illuminating on various aspects of political culture in Turkey. A number of the deep dives that Ruben has published on his website over the years have been brought together in his latest book, Borderline Personalities, Lives at the Political, Social and Geographic Edges of Modern Turkey, published by Libra Books here in Istanbul. It's actually the third volume of his articles that they've published, and indeed he appeared on this podcast three years ago in May 2019 to discuss one of those volumes, if you want to delve back into the Turkey Book Talk archives for that one. But before we get started with this latest interview, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews and listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ruben Silverman. I started by asking him, what is the common thread that runs through the pieces brought together in this latest book? And what do they collectively show us? All these essays, they all, they, I came up with them individually as I was working on my larger you know, scholarly project that I work on, which is 1950s Turkish history. And as I was doing that, I'd come across different topics that piqued my interest. And putting them all together, what I did notice was that there were these, to some extent, linking themes, one of them being the focus on individuals. I'm personally very interested in how particular individual lives intersect with multiple different themes in Turkish history. I don't necessarily like writing about say, a theme on its own terms. So something like the rise of Islamic politics in Turkey. I prefer to look at a particular individual who was involved in that and show how, yes, their life intersected with that, but also intersected with multiple other important aspects of, of Turkey's history. 
So that's one thing that brings these essays all together, is that they tend to, for the most part, have an individual at their center. And then the themes that tended to interest me in these last few years when I've been working on these often were about people on either the geographical margins of Turkey, say along the Iraqi border or the Syrian border, or on the political or social margins of Turkey. So people from groups in Turkey that are underrepresented in the public sphere. So that could be um, Kurdish artists, it could be uh, left-wing artists, it could be members of the Donme community, it could be um, people involved in uh, sex work. So there's just been an interest on my part in looking at some of these people who are not always included in the narrative of Turkey that we are familiar with, and looking at some of the areas that are outside the centers that we normally focus on, such as Istanbul and Ankara. And so when I put that all together, I come away with this collection of essays I've done that by and large, focus on those sort of people and focus on these regions that are, again, away from the normal places we look. And I think by doing that, I think we get to have a slightly different understanding of what certain periods in Turkish history looked like or how certain developments in Turkish history played out. And I find that to be a very uh, productive way of looking at it. Yeah, following off on that, I mean, you write, I think, in the introduction, that, quote, first and foremost, there's an attempt to think about Middle Eastern political history beyond the nation state by looking at the lives of people who created, challenged and sought to reform those states. Neither the Ottoman Empire nor its successor states, such as Turkey, have interests or personalities of their own. They're collections of institutions forged by human beings. It's those human beings who have interests, ambitions and dreams of what the state should look like. Their efforts to realise these visions are shaped by their relationships, personal histories, social obligations and individual quirks. Focusing on such individuals helps us appreciate the contingency at the heart of state building projects. And you also say, in several of these essays, I follow the lives of people who lived through the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and were forced, like millions of others, to find a place for themselves in the post-Ottoman world. In other essays, I consider people who lived their adult lives in the Republic of Turkey, but never fully conformed to the model of citizenship that the Republic's builders demanded. So you, that, I think, gets to the nub. The reason I'm highlighting that quote is because it gets to the nub, really, of the project, I suppose, that this volume represents. You know, you're looking in various chapters at these peripheral figures in some senses, but by examining why they're peripheral figures and what the forces are that are exerted on their personal histories, you know, studying them, we can really shed interesting light on various aspects of Turkish history. Indeed. You know, well, let me give you one example of from one of the chapters. The first one, in fact, is about a Memdu Shevket Essendal, who's this Turkish novelist and short story writer. And you know, over the years, I think I'd heard the name here or there, but he kept popping up in things I was reading. And so I, I started re reading more about this, uh, this guy. And what I realized about him was that he wasn't just some novelist, and that's all there is to say about him. He was also a leading political figure. He was also a member of the Committee for Union and Progress in the last years of the Ottoman Empire. He was also a, a leading diplomat for the Republic of Turkey during the 20s and 30s. So you have a, someone like this who 
they're central in certain respects because they're playing a central role in these important aspects of Turkish history. And yet, at the same time, these are not people you ever hear about as the focus of books, as the focus of articles. When I ask friends about Essendal, they might know him, but they don't know anything about him. And they don't realize that he played this role at key moments in the formation of, say, Turkish politics, Turkish diplomacy with its uh, eastern neighbor states like Iran or uh, Azerbaijan or um, Afghanistan. And yet he did. And to look at someone like that, you see these relationships these between states taking shape in the life of one individual. So he, he stands out to me as the type of person who illustrates exactly that quote you're reading, where you see him present at the creation of these different relationships, and yet he himself moves from one place to another, one set of relationships to another set of relationships. And that movement highlights the way all these different things are interconnected. Some listeners might think that by focusing on individual personalities in this way actually risks overlooking some of the structural forces at work. Uh, but I think actually the way that you use this this technique does show how those bigger structural factors operate on individual personalities. You know, there's this uh, bigger question, really, the constant tug of war or argument about what shapes history, individual people or impersonal structural forces. And you come down on arguably on one side of that. By looking at the individuals, I suppose Turkey is a good a good arena to have a look at that theme in. Well, it's not just that I I come down on one side or the other. I just you know, like you, I'm sure, like anyone listening to this, I read large amounts about Turkey, Turkish history, and there's so many good authors out there already who've written about these larger structural forces. And so what do I think can be my contribution? I think it can be telling some of these particular stories of people. And I don't necessarily think that mean that undermines the importance of the structures, but I think by showing the way individuals interact with these structures, I think that does something I don't, I personally don't find enough in other things that I read. And I'd like to, I like to see it. I'd like to see more of it. And that's what I like to contribute myself, I think. Yeah, and that's what exactly what most of these chapters do uh, is looking at an individual and then looking at how they were rocked on the ties, really, of uh, 20th century history. Let's dig now into some of the subjects of uh, these pieces and see how they reflect some of these themes. Uh, firstly, I want to talk about the piece in the book on the 20th century poet Jigarwin. Now, he's someone who uh, sought to cultivate Kurdish national consciousness, essentially. He was involved in Kurdish politics across the region, actually, over the years in multiple countries, Turkey, Syria and Iraq. You say, quote, he moved among social circles and geographical points only marginally connected to the political borders that had sprung up during the course of his lifetime. Following his journeys gives us some sense of how artificial those boundaries are. At the same time, the tribulations Jigarwin and his peers faced reveal the dangers of trying to imagine beyond them. So just talk about him. What is it that appealed to you about him? And what does his trajectory reveal about this way of thinking about the 20th century? Well, he's one of these these figures I looked at whose life really doesn't fit within a particular set of national borders. And what's so fascinating to me about his life is as it developed, he became involved in very different national political contexts, and yet he retained these interests that were larger than that. So, for example, he was born before the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. In other words, when he was growing up, there was, there was no Syria, there was no Iraq, there was no Turkey. 
And so if you look at the world from the perspective of this one person, you see him growing up in this environment where the world around him is shaped not by the states we know today, and to some extent, not even by the Ottoman Empire, but rather by powerful notables who live in the area around him. He himself was a religious student. And if you're a religious student in this era, the you know, 1910s into the 1920s, what you do is, is you find a teacher and you either stay with that teacher and learn from that teacher, or you travel around to different teachers in the region. And for him, the region was the Kurdish-speaking region that in the Ottoman Empire was in what is now Iraq, Syria, Turkey. And so he was traveling around all these different towns, talking with these different teachers in different cities, interacting with different local notables, powerful landlords in these different areas. And his life is just not developing with the idea that there is something that's going to look like Turkey, that's going to look like Iraq, that's going to look like Syria. And yet that reality, those structures were imposed suddenly onto the world in which he lived. And one thing I didn't truly appreciate until I started reading about him is the way in which a lot of the towns along, say, the, in his case, Syrian Turkish border today, how they sprung up after, after World War I, after the Turkish uh, War of Independence, and after these borders had become more fixed. So you might travel around the border region in Ottoman times between, you know, Mosul and uh, Mardin and Nisaibin and some of these other places. But after a certain point, the border became more fixed. So you had towns like Kamishli forming on the on one side of the border and Nusaibin and Mardin forming on the other side of the border. And so I think that this type, this way in which the development of cities, the movement of people is contingent on these political events that they did not themselves perceive, it really emerges out of looking at his early life. And as you go through the 20s and the 30s, you see him becoming more interested in Kurdish nationalism. But again, if you look at it from his perspective, it's not fitting into these narratives we sometimes see of the development of the Turkish Republic or the development of the Syrian Republic or Syrian mandate. It's utterly different. And only by looking at his life do you start to see the way in which there's a different way of understanding the region, a different way of imagining how these different points connect. So I, I, I found that to be very interesting about him to start off with. There's another enduring theme that came through for me in reading about his life, and that is the kind of struggle that still continues today, essentially, that he embodied. So he was somebody who sought to cultivate Kurdish national consciousness. And part of that bid really was basically denigrating what he saw as backward ignorance in the traditional society of Eastern Anatolia. Uh, there's a passage here that I noted down that I'll quote from. You say, on one occasion, he found himself in a heated argument with a sheikh. After Jigawin complained about Turkish raids on Nusaibin, the sheikh accused him of being a lackey of the English. You, the sheikh explained, are an unbeliever. You're trying to blacken the name of the Turkish Muslims. If it weren't for the Turks, Islam wouldn't have remained around here. Who else do we have but them? Jigawin replied, the Hadith says, he who places the stamp of infidel on another Muslim is himself an infidel. Tensions between the two men were only eased when one of Jigawin's classmates intervened to change the subject. The whole interaction suggests how far political nationalism remained from being a consensus among leaders of the Kurdish-speaking community. The idea that a Kurdish nation existed and took precedence over religious or tribal affiliations, let alone that it required a state, remained largely a project of educated elites during World War I and the early 1920s. 
And there's two things that in particular come to mind reading that passage for me. And one is, as I say, that theme of the clash between nationalist modernity and religious tradition can really still actually be seen and traced in Kurdish politics and society indeed today. And two, that division actually also, I thought, has a considerable similarity actually with Turkish nationalism, at least in its Kemalist guise. You know, this idea of a modern vanguard trying to drag society along with it and cultivate national consciousness. Uh, it's an ironic comparison, many might think, but it's one that um, was provoked for me as I as I was reading that piece. Yeah, I agree. And one thing it says to me is that, in fact, the divisions aren't as clear as we sometimes imagine them to be, whether it's in the case of Turkish nationalist movement or in the case of the uh, Kemalist nation-building project, shall we say. Because in the Kurdish case, at least, in the case of Jagerhuin, he's a you know developing nationalist, but he's also at certain points a communist, or at least sympathetic to the Communist Party. And for all that, he's still on very good terms with the local notables. In that example you give, he's arguing very you know, vociferously with this particular notable, but there's other notables who he's very friendly with, who help him out, who give him money from time to time, who in one case, because he has more money than he seems to let on in his biography, it seems, he uh, buys the uh, the rights to some villages and, he, and eventually sells them to another landlord. The point being that even though you have this guy who has these views that there is this Kurdish nation that has to throw off the forces, whether it's of other nationalisms, of other states, of capitalists or the allies of capitalists, whatever it might be, he's still working with the same groups of people who, according to his you know, professed ideology, you would think would be his enemies. So what you get from that is that there is a mixing of all these different gr groups together in this time period, and it's not clear how it's going to develop. You have some Kurdish leaders who are very close to the Turkish state. You have some Kurdish leaders who are very opposed to it. And you have some leaders who go back and forth between the, the British over in Iraq, in Mustafa Kemal's regime, both during the War of Independence and after, and are playing sides off against one another. And I think one way to get through some of this complexity is to look at these people's lives because it shows you how people can be both things at the same time. They can be a strong nationalist, they can be a communist, and they can have some either religious beliefs, religious sympathies, or at least describe their ideas using religious rhetoric, which is in its own way very important in terms of communicating with all these different groups. There's another fascinating chapter in the book that I learned so much from. It was called The Luke's Nermin Scandal and the End of the Democrat Party. This is about this woman, Luke's Nermin, who was basically running a brothel just off Taksim Square in Istanbul. And it was a high class brothel, you might say. It was catering to the elite of Istanbul and of Turkey, actually. And that included the political elite, uh, including senior members of the Democrat Party that was in power at the time, the Conservative Democrat Party under um, Prime Minister Adnan Menderes. And this chapter, it really goes into detail about what that brothel essentially represented and what its exposure, which became a national scandal essentially, that has actually been rather forgotten since then. It's not referenced in popular discussions, I don't think, even about this period, which is often referred to in, in contemporary discourse. It's really not mentioned that much, but your chapter goes into a lot of detail about this and what it exposes really about this close relationship between political power and illicit activity, underground, underhand business in terms 
Kentucky during these early years of the Cold War in the 1950s. And again, I suppose without spelling it out, we can perhaps draw certain thematic parallels between that early Cold War era and today in terms of the relationship between political power and illicit activity, I suppose. wonder if that comparison between the, this era and today's era went through your head as you were researching and writing that chapter. Oh, certainly, yes. I mean, in this particular case, this uh, brothel owner, she was operating illegally, but at the same time, she was operating illegally simply because she didn't have a license. She could have operated legally, and that's an interesting aspect of Turkey during the 50s also, is that sex work is legal as long as it's licensed by the government. Same today. And what I think it speaks to is, as you're suggesting, this way in which the line between legal and illegal, licit and illicit, isn't very clear sometimes when you look at these particular instances. And I think that's worth keeping in mind as you think about any political regime, because any any political regime has to have influence, contact with different elements in the society, right? A political regime that ignores or pretends that, say, a world, a world of black market activity doesn't exist is a political regime that's unable to exercise power, exercise authority, properly develop policies, because they're not taking into account the world as it actually exists. And so what interests me about any political regime, but in, in this case, in this uh, particular essay's case, the Democrat Party during the 1950s, is the way in which the knowledge of something like this going on, illicit sex work in this case, does tie into the way politicians operate, the way they present themselves, and how power is, uh, I guess, displayed in a political culture. So in the 1950s, specifically, uh, you have this the Democrat Party come to power, and the Democrat Party is um, it's the party of Adnan Menderes, Jalal Bayar, names who listeners I'm sure have heard over the years. And the Democrat Party, it's uh, it's usually described as a populist party, a center-right party, a party that challenges statism and desires to have more liberal economic policies. Th- those are, that's, that's a general way it's described. But then when you look at its policies, it's not as uh, anti-statist as some people might say. And it's not as conservative in the ways we now imagine conservative to mean. So if you think conservative means desiring, say, traditional gender roles or traditional hierarchy of gender, that's not quite right with the Democrat Party because all of the leading Democrats were constantly having affairs. The newspapers that were ty- that were popular at the time were full of um, images of you know scantily clad women. And so, how does one make sense of a of this party? Can we call it conservative, or do we misunderstand what conservative means? Well, looking at an example like this brings those questions to mind, and it makes us have to rethink some of these ways in which we define the party, and maybe misdefine the party by using some of our contemporary divisions between liberal and conservative to look at it. So in the case of Turkey in the 1950s, one thing that was happening was that you had a challenge to the 1930s, maybe 1940s, we can say Kemalist conception of the place of women, the public sphere, the, the ways male politicians should um, comport themselves in public. You had some of a challenge to that. So you had this new generation of politicians, the Democrats, who are 
they, they enjoy more having part their parties and their meetings at hotels, having you know, with cocktails available in Istanbul during the 1950s. These big famous hotels like the Hilton are going up. So you have a more public culture of politicians where they're out and about making connections, meeting and greeting. Adnan Menderes very famously was carrying on an affair for many years with a, a opera an opera singer. And my sense is that this being out there in the world, this public display, it's a change from the Kamala, the era of Ataturk and Inunu who preceded the Democrats, where the parties were at Ataturk's house. They were away from the public eye. People like Inunu presented more of a reserved aspect. So in the 1950s, you have these politicians who are putting themselves out there into the world, and they're making these connections, displaying these connections that wouldn't have been public in previous generations. And it's not public to everybody. It's not necessarily that people in um, rural areas during the 50s are quite aware of this, but it's certainly clear to the political class. It's clear in the cities themselves. And once the Democrats are removed from office in 1960 by the military, the military prosecutes them. And one of the things it brings up is all these illicit sexual displays, whatever you want to say, that the Democrats have been doing for the last 10 years. The military hammers away at this and the, the media that didn't like the Democrats hammers away at it because it can undermine the Democrats to maybe rural voters. But you don't want, they don't want to push it too far either, because this culture that the Democrats are embracing is more widespread than just the Democrats. And it's not something that's necessarily hidden in urban areas. So you have these tensions and these contradictions. And just thinking them through, I, I find very fascinating for me and I hope for readers as well. Another chapter is about Ismail Jem, and he's definitely another character that's worth dwelling on. So he served as foreign minister actually in the 1990s, but the piece in the book is about his brief stint as the head of state broadcaster TRT for 15 months, starting in 1974. Now, this was obviously an era of considerable political turbulence, contestation from the, the streets, basically, right to the top of the state and various institutions. And TRT was one of them. So his reign for those 15 months is generally seen, as you describe it in the book, as this attempt to pull TRT left. So he was a member of the CHP during this period. And the CHP at the time was following this left wing line under edge of it. And he attempted to basically use TRT as a way to spread some of these more social democratic messages in Turkish society. And obviously that came up against quite a bit of uh, resistance from various corners. And ultimately he was um, removed after a change of coalition government, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, after just 15 months in the position. You describe uh, his rather turbulent period in that role. I mean, what is it that um, this brief, perhaps forgotten episode or tenure can tell us about that broader period of the 1970s, which is pretty widely written on and widely considered a very fundamental era in modern Turkish history? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. And I think one way in which we typically think about, especially the 70s in Turkey, is in terms of left-right violence, fighting in the streets, all this type of thing. But there's another aspect to it, too, which is this breakdown of state institutions, because you have frequent changes of government. You have these coalition governments in which multiple parties are getting control of different ministries and different institutions. And so one thing that's happening in the 1970s is 
you're having an institution like TRT go through a series of different you know, general managers, but also having fights at each level, right? So fights within the board that appoints the director and fights within each of the different divisions, the TV division, the radio division, the news division, the television show division. So you have all these different fights going on. And in the case of Ismail Jem, yeah, he's there for about 500 days, something along those lines, but then he's gone. So all these fights that are happening, they're repeated again, and then they're repeated again and again and again. And you have this point reached where a lot of institutions just aren't functioning very well, besides the, the violence that we might typically think of outside on the, on the streets. You're having this chaos within state governing institutions. So that's what's one thing I think it reveals. And I think by looking at his particular experience, it's a fun way of seeing how these power dynamics operate, how the bureaucratic infighting takes place. I particularly like that aspect of it. But I think there's also another aspect that we can think of with it, which is that Ismail Jem, he is a fairly young guy when he gets this job. He's been educated in uh, France. He's written these books that are, his, his main book is called like A History of Turkish Underdeveloped. Development. And it's this book talking about how Turkish history, Ottoman and Turkish history is best explained through capitalist development, exploitation of Turkish people by capitalist forces. So he has this very left-wing view, but more than that, he's in tune with the general left, center-left enthusiasms of the time. So when he comes into office at TRT, it's not that he's trying to turn it into a font of left-wing propaganda. It's more that he's trying to make it part of a, the cultural movement of the 60s and 70s. And what that means in practice, again, isn't so much that he's trying to move it left. It's more he's trying to make it culturally meaningful. So in other words, he pushes people at the at TRT to develop better TV programming, more ambitious miniseries, uh, more ambitious news coverage, these types of things. And you, see, it's not just in Turkey where you see these types of things happen. In American public television, you have this too. I'm sure in England, too, that's when some of these uh, miniseries like, I don't know, I, Claudius, or these famous BBC miniseries are being developed. So it's in Turkey and beyond, his generation of people are pushing for more ambitious television that tries to do more than just sort of make people passively engaged with it, that really kind of makes people, makes viewers think. And uh, that that makes him a particularly interesting person at, at TRT, because people before him and after him have ambitions for developing the spread of TRT. TV around the country, the range of, you know, broadcasts, the number of shows on per day, but they don't have this cultural goal that he has. And so that also makes him a very interesting person to look at. One thing that's also fascinating about Ismail Jem is that he's from the Donme community, which is not the same as the Jewish community, but there are these connections. Donme are the descendants of a Jewish mil millenarian group from the 1600s that converted to Islam at that time. There's a, there used to be a large population of Donme in Salonika and a large population in Izmir and in Istanbul. And Donme have played a very important role as you know as merchants, people with capital in like in, in developing things like the Turk Turkish cinema, right? The is Ismail Jem's parents' generation was very much involved in Turkish cinema. And because of the fact that they have this history of conversion, and because of the fact that they live in cities, and because of the fact that they have capital they invest in things, there's so many conspiracies that swirl around Donme and some of the more paranoid literature out there. And so I think if people are uh, out there watching, um, you know, some Netflix shows like Club and thinking that Turkish 
Turkey is maybe a more complex, diverse place than they sometimes see in, in movies and in other depictions. I'd encourage them to go and read this article, but Ismail Gem for that reason as well. And the same goes for some of these other articles, which I think also look into different minority communities in Turkey. But, but I th- there's clearly an interest out there uh, for these type of topics. So I, if people like that sort of thing, I really encourage them to read this book, go to my website, which is just my name, <laughs> Ruben Silverman, it's easy to find. And I read some of these articles I've written there as well, because I think they would hopefully appeal to a broad audience of listeners. Now, zooming back out a bit to some of the themes, I think one of the themes that comes through is that by focusing on many of these characters, one really does get a sense of the region more broadly. So regional forces interacting with and influencing trends within Turkey. Obviously, each different territory is shaped by different modernization currents, and they all interacted in different ways, learned from each other and adapted different experiences. But it does help paint this broader picture than a more narrow parochial focus on internal Turkish affairs. And uh, I think that's a very good thing to do because it's quite rare to actually get that picture because very often we all, we'd sort of balkanize history, don't we? We look back at the recent past and just look at it as being Turkish history rather than this kind of richer palette, really, that is informed by multiple different regional forces. And I think you you do that in these pieces. Was that a conscious attempt on your part or was it just something that came through the material naturally? One thing I've been thinking about a lot, again, during the last, it is really during these last four or five years, especially when there has been so much violence in the border, along the Turkish border, right? Turkey's incursions into northern Syria, for example, have put it on the forefront of my mind that Turkey is interconnected with these countries around it. And so it's made me be thinking more and more as someone who's interested in history, where can I look to understand how these contemporary things I'm reading about, how do they, how do they come to be. So when I'm looking at something like present day contention in border regions, I want to ask myself, well, what did it look like before there was that border region? Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly aware that this border is a rather recent creation. So I want to look back at it and think more broadly about, well, okay, what did it look like before? What forces were at play then? Have those forces completely changed or are there still linkages and commonalities? And I do think that when you only look at, when you take states as a given, when you take them as these eternal homogenous entities that are just always there unchanging, you really do lose sight of the fact that all these states of Turkey and all the states around it have come into being over a long period of time. And the way that happened really was dependent, not on anything inevitable, but on negotiations that happened at a given time, interests that you know one set of leaders or another set of leaders might have had at a particular moment. So I really do think that stepping back back in that way is important because it gives us a little more sensitivity to the subtleties that get lost in the present. I I agree with you on on that. That was Ruben Silverman. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 168. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. 
You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (music) 